Hello, and welcome to We Read Theory, a podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. Uh, my name is Mark. My name is Alex. And Alex, how are you doing today? I'm a little, little, little drunk, Mark. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's, that's, you know, that's fantastic not, not to hear. abnormal. That's exactly how Martin Luther King would have wanted it, which is of <laughs> incredible <laughs> divine intelligence. Uh, because uh, this episode is, of course, in anticipation of upcoming Martin Luther King Day, and we figured we'd ring in the the day of celebration with an episode on Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, have you heard of this before? Yes, I have. I heard, like, legitimately, one of the only, like, cool things I learned in public school uh, history class was... Not legitimately. You're biting your thumb right now, but like legitimately, he wrote it with a golf pencil on like the outside of newspaper yeah. because they wouldn't allow him paper, which is fucking cool little factoid, bro. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting... Um, he was also... Yeah, he actually had... Um, I know that um, the letter from the Birmingham jail was actually written in direct response to another piece called... Um, I can't remember what it's called, but... It's called A Call for Unity, mm-hmm. and um, that was actually had to be smuggled in because he couldn't get newspapers. So that's a pretty cool little tidbit. Um, most people who are familiar with like leftist thought have heard, or maybe not most people, but a, lo- a lot of people have at least read a, um, a particular excerpt from this text, which is, of course, um, the part where Martin Luther King um, talks about his disappointment with the white moderate, and we will absolutely get there. But it's actually a much richer document than that. He talks a lot about how to organize a direct action campaign and stuff, which is really, really relevant um, to kind of understanding leftism as a whole. So I think this is a really great document to get into. Let's get started right away. Yeah, tell me a little bit about it, my guy. Okay, so maybe even more than some of the other stuff we've talked about so far, this is an extremely important document to understand in its direct historical context. Uh, when Dr. King wrote this letter, he was being held in Birmingham City Jail. He was in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, as one of the leaders of a direct action campaign that included the kind of nonviolent demonstrations that the American Civil Rights Movement has become known for, like sit-ins and marches. Uh, the campaign began on April 6, 1963. Four days later, on the 10th, a circuit judge made a ruling that effectively disallowed the campaign completely. King and other campaign leaders publicly stated that they weren't going to obey the ruling, and on the 12th, two days after that, King, along with a number of other demonstrators, was arrested, and on that same day, eight white clergymen from the state of Alabama signed a letter called A Call for Unity. Uh, The gist of the letter is basically, yes, we agree that racial injustice is a serious problem, but we don't agree with the methods being used by those demonstrating in Birmingham right now. Uh, The letter calls for efforts to be focused on the courts rather than ground action and urges black Americans to just be more patient with their liberation. King is able to read this letter while in jail uh, because one of his colleagues uh, smuggles it in in a newspaper. And the letter from Birmingham jail that we're about to discuss is a direct response to this letter, a call to unity. The letter from Birmingham jail itself is probably best known for King's expression of disappointment in white moderates. And we'll get to that, but its primary thrust is all about justifying direct action that involves law-breaking, both practically and morally. According to King, every nonviolent social movement consists of four stages. The first is that evidence is found 
the social injustice, and it goes without saying that King and his contemporaries had plenty of evidence to go around. We're not going to discuss whether or not the civil rights movement was justified on this podcast. Anyone listening should be on board with that already. I hope Um, so. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The second stage is negotiation. The oppressed class attempts to appeal directly to the ruling class for their rights. This is a necessary part of a nonviolent movement, but it's also basically destined to fail, either in part or in whole because the ruling class benefits from the oppression it allows. The negotiation stage ends when the oppressed class come to the realization that the ruling class must be made to grant their freedom. You can't just ask for it. For King, this came when the city fathers, high-ranking municipal officials and the like, refused to have productive negotiations, and when city merchants, who'd promised to take down discriminatory signage, like, you know, no black people allowed, no colored people allowed, uh, they didn't really keep this promise. So that's the end of stage two. Stage three is the stage of self-purification. Direct action is really hard. It doesn't just require effort. You have to do it right. Nonviolence requires demonstrators to accept violence upon themselves without returning it. Civil disobedience requires demonstrators to openly break the law with the, expe- with the expectation of receiving the corresponding punishment. Those who prepare to take direct action must be knowledgeable of what is expected of them and confident in their ability to meet those expectations. Stage four is direct action itself, the aforementioned marches and sit-ins. King discusses two points about timing your direct action. He talks about wanting to do it during Easter season so as to make the greatest economic disruption because King understood very closely that you can't just show people that you're mad. You have to actually hit them where it hurts. So originally the marches were planned for the Easter season so they would disrupt, disrupt the general, you know, normal functioning economy as much as possible. However, this was eventually changed Uh, They delayed the demonstrations until after a contentious election, which was coming up a little bit after Easter season. So you can kind of see already that there's there's a very balanced understanding of that, like, action must be made to be as effective as possible. So they originally wanted to do it during Easter season for the economic effects, but they decided to pull back because they knew that the demonstrations would rile resistance up against them, and they, you know... They didn't want that to cost a contentious election. So I think that was pretty smart on their part. Oh, no, of course. I think anyone listening to this podcast should be coming in with the idea of at least understanding what a protest is for. Understanding that a protest isn't just distributing literature, posting signage. It's actually drawing attention to your cause by disrupting, you know, the normal state of things. Yeah, yeah. That's going to affect you. It's not, uh, I'm sorry, but it's going to affect you. Like, for example, let's take, like, Black Lives Matter protesters after, I think it was the death of, um, I don't, I don't want to get this wrong, but (laughs) at the same level as something like Eric Garner, if not him, were um, standing in the middle of a freeway blocking traffic to draw attention to their cars. This is a very common thing that people talk about. There is no way you would have heard of, like, these kinds of protests (laughs) if they hadn't done something like that. Yeah, you have to, you have to, at the very least, inconvenience people if you aren't causing an even bigger ruckus than that. Exactly. Um, And, 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 you know, people think of, like, uh, think of King as, like, this paragon of nonviolence, which of course he was, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't willing to cause damage. Those are not the same thing. Engaging in violence and 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 
you know, making people's, making certain people's lives temporarily worse are not necessarily the same thing. And he was very much in favor of making people's, certain people's lives worse when it helped you fight for the freedom that you were fighting for. And that's something that I, of course, totally, I mean, anyone who thinks that the American Revolution was a good thing, you know, agrees with that. Fundamentally, yes, but yeah. the people who bring up 1776 in arguments aren't necessarily thinking critically <laughs> not, all the time. Not though. always. You know, of but course. at the same time, also, side note, um, we're not endorsing or not endorsing any violent or nonviolent action as a podcast, but, but at the same time, I think Martin Luther King understood that, one, capitalism is violent, but inverted that to hit him where it hurts. You know, technically to like the average person appearing nonviolent, but causing enough, causing enough um, pain to the powers that be. So that's, that's actually a a good point um, that actually relates to another famous quote from this particular uh, text, which is, of course, that a lot of people call themselves moderates, right? Because they prefer a peace that is the absence of tension to a piece that is the presence of justice, if you know what I mean. So people talk about, um, like, white moderates, right? Talk about King and other, you know, demonstrators at the time kind of bringing about racial tension. And, and, and King would say, well, yeah, sure, I mean, we're, we're bringing about racial tension, but is that necessarily a bad thing if it brings us closer to a more just system? That tension is a necessary part of the process. And that kind of brings us to probably the most famous piece of this letter, which is, of course, King's disappointment with the white moderate. There are a couple of different critiques that are levied at King by the people that he calls white moderates. In particular, the group of eight white clergymen from Alabama who wrote the letter, the uh, call to unity. First, the demonstrations are bad because they cause violence. Uh, you know, obviously, there wasn't an accusation that King himself was violent or even that his own demonstrators were violent. But the fact that violence would almost always follow in the wake of these large demonstrations and that that's a known quantity when you plan something like this should dissuade you from doing it if you're an anti-violence person. Um and King basically says, this is ridiculous. I totally agree that it's ridiculous. He says that it's like punishing a robbed man for the fact that he owned possessions that made the robbery possible. And I think that that's pretty apt. I mean, you have people, you know, fighting for equal rights. And the fact that you can't, you can't expect them to sit down just because, like, white supremacists will be violent to them as a result of them doing that. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. People are doing that even today. There's... No, I'm... I'm <laughs> no, 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 like, I'm, not, I'm, not la- I'm not laughing at you. Of course, you're absolutely right. Fucking... Okay, specifically, you know who Andy No is? Of course. The, okay. So, for those who don't know, um, su- right-wing pseudo-journalists, there's, there's people out there who no, are I'm unaware. No, s- making a name pun, don't worry. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> anyway, um... Will will provoke people, um, namely leftist and quote unquote Antifa protesters. I know that's sort of like to them, it's basically a meme at this point. You know, anyone who reacts against um, right wing violence is deemed a uh, violent Antifa protester and yeah, loped yeah. into this category. People who are just 
violent thugs for no reason when they're actually just and which Antifa wouldn't exist without fascists in the first place. So we're not getting into that. But yeah, that's the point. Is people are are baited, bait not not even baited, but just like provoked and prodded into this shit. And then put on display saying, oh, these people are violent, these people are thugs. Yeah, and that's... Incorrectly. That's kind of what we talk... That's kind of what King is talking about when he talks about the peace that is the absence of tension rather than the presence of justice. Is like that big difference. Is because when you have the absence of tension, it's not an absence of tension. It's an absence of the visibility of tension. But it's still there bubbling under the surface. But, you know, if, say, the tension that you're talking about is the fact that uh, people of color are not fully do not have full rights as citizens then if you're a white person then obviously that tension is going to appear as if it doesn't even exist um and that's really why uh king is specifically pointing at white moderates here and not just any kind of moderate because i think that that along with being a moderate that being white kind of makes it easier to hold this viewpoint because it's easy not to see the tension in society when it isn't on the surface one of the other big um, criticisms that gets le- that was levied at um, King and his you know associates in the call to unity was kind of this idea that civil rights have gradually pro- pro- uh, progressed over recent times, and so people go, listen, things just get better with time, right? Why are you making a big stink? Things are just going to get better. Let it happen. Let the natural course of history run, and. This is, of course, also uh, ridiculous because the reason why, in retrospect, it appears that we've progressed is not just because of some essential fact of time. You know, it's because people like King worked. And I honestly find people making this exact same argument today um, about how, like, you know, time is just kind of progressive and things just get better. And, 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 they, and, they, and they point to the kind of progress made by people like Martin Luther King Jr., like Malcolm X, like the Black Panthers. And it's, it's the disconnect just isn't even visible to them, and it's really shameful. People, I feel like, especially, I'm, 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 not, I'm not just going to say like white people, I'm going to say people of, people of means, people of privilege. I yeah. feel like it's, it, it'd be wrong to say Of, of, of just class privilege or of any kind of privilege? Um, well, I feel like a, a lot of people could make this argument, but um, definitely of class privilege sure. and more often than not white mm-hmm. people, you know, um, it's presented to them in a very linear way. These are also the same people that believe um, uh, the Thanksgiving story is that, you know, colonists came over and planted corn and had a had a dinner with the Indians instead of infecting them with smallpox, you know. They just believe this happens at a linear rate instead of a trigonometric wave of people being you know, pushed down to a point of uh, great revolution over and over and so over again. So you're kind of coming at it from, from the Marxist perspective. Like, you're, you're, you're getting into some historical dialectics here, right? Okay, let's stay on topic here, Mark. Okay. Just <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. So that, that, that kind of covers the uh, white moderate for the most part. I, I, and and w- what you mentioned about the... Um, about the kind of story of the first Thanksgiving the Native Americans is, is, is really pertinent because that same kind of like cleansing of history, that revisionism, that kind of redeems the ruling class of that era is the same kind of revisionism that 
um, redeems the ruling class of King's era, where, like, the way that a lot of people, I think, think about it is that, like, Martin Luther King and a bunch of other people, like, marched together and pleaded with, like, the, the with, like, the white ruling class and, and like, a single tear, like, dripped down George Wallace's face and he was like, segregation never again. Like, obviously no one will, like, tell you that this is what belief, but it's, like, the way that they talk about it, 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 it gives off this notion that that is how they look at it. And, of course, that's totally uh, ahistorical. And that's really why it, it feels so important to me to talk about this particular text. Um, besides the white moderate, there is, of course, also the white church, which was a very powerful institution in Alabama at the time. And, you know, Christianity textually is very egalitarian in certain ways. Um, we could do there are, volumes yeah, on the hypocrisy it's, of Christianity. Obviously it's, obviously it's complicated, but there are points in history where Christianity has been kind of a force for equality, at least on the surface. Um, and, you know, there's all this talk about like charity and stuff. King thought that the church was going to be a great ally to the movement of, of equality. Uh, this was kind of before the era of the Christian conservative, the religious right. Uh, but, of course, he was deeply disappointed in, it, you know, how it actually went down. The church in Alabama, or in the country as a whole, never really made significant statements about the morality of desegregation or about its relevancy to church doctrine. And, you know, this was deeply disheartening, but ultimately, King soldiered on, and thank God for that. One last uh, little piece, uh, just to kind of tie everything together, is that King kind of comes to this moral conclusion uh, in a letter in the letter from the Birmingham jail, which is that you can't praise a group for nonviolence if its goals are immoral, and at the same time, you can't necessarily knock a group uh, in the same way, at least which maybe isn't totally nonviolent if their goals are moral. And he compares his own like group of activists to the police department of uh, Birmingham at this time, who were, by King's admission, really disciplined and really as, as nonviolent as he thinks they possibly could have been in enforcing this disallowal of the, of the protests. And the call for unity kind of pleads with uh, King to recognize this, or at least on its own recognizes, like, hey, like, let's give it up for the police department that did such a good job in not roughing you guys up too hard, you know, when they stopped you from protesting to end segregation. And King basically says, like, you know, let's be gone with this way of thinking, that we need to, like, praise people who are working towards immoral ends, even if their means are nonviolent or moral in their own kind of way. That's so great. I thought you. I thought you were gonna say like, "Thank God they were like nice to us" or something. No, like that. They were trying to no. get me to endorse law enforcement. No. <laughs> King really said all cops are bastards. Uh, he really did. He said all cops are bastards. He said there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, and he said, you know, it's okay that historical revisionism is gonna totally destroy most people's understanding of me because one day couple of kids are going to fix it for everyone, and everything will be great. <laughs> You're not talking about us, right? And that about wraps it up for this episode of We Read Theory. Thank you all for listening. Um, 
We are actually on Twitter now at We Read Theory Pod. Go give us a follow if you are so inclined. And if not, you know, just keep listening because we appreciate, you know, all your support and kind words. Well, that's that's most of my mom listening to the first five seconds of it and saying, I love you, honey. But, you know, 